Welcome, everybody, to the Us Without Them podcast. It's our first official A to B Life episode that isn't just kind of a meta commentary on the album or the band itself. So we are super excited to be digging into... We made it. We made it. We're so excited to dig into Bullet to Binary. (laughs) (laughs) If you're just joining us, uh, go back and listen to the first two because they're fun. I think they align a lot with where we're going as a collective, uh, the goals we have for the podcast. So there's a lot to dig into there. But uh, if you're really just all about the music, you've you've come to the right place. Yeah. And I just, I can't, I feel like I can't overstate how amazing a beginning to a, to a catalog this track is. I mean, I, I don't, I don't know. I'm not, I feel like uh, Me Without You fans are sort of split sometimes on this record, but um, for me, it's just every time I hear that opening synthesizer, I'm just like, yes, <laughs> I'm just, I'm so ready for what's coming. And the, the anticipation that it builds, the synthesizer and then the drums, Ricky hits the drums so hard. So hard so and so hard. Well. Oh, yeah. Powerful. Yeah. yeah, it's just, it's incredible. I mean, it's it's one of the best opening tracks to a record ever. I think it's really, really, really good. To to reference high fidelity, it is probably one of my favorite track one side one. <laughs> it, 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 it was such a good, as you said, Joel, opener to an album, opener to a discography. Yes, they have their initial EPs and things like that, but for many people, this is the entry point and. Right. Decades later, I still feel the prickle on the back of my neck hearing that synthesizer yes. every time. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's so fun. Well, and I, whatever you know, whatever um, uncertainty the band themselves have had about this record over the years, because they went a lot of time without playing any of these songs. They kind of brought them back into the catalog, you know, on mm-hmm. tour every once in a while until they finally did the 15-year anniversary where they played it through straight from start to finish. But um, back in 2012, uh, Aaron Weiss did an interview with Alter the Press. And he, so he, this is what he had to say about this song. He said, I still like the first song on that record. It's a really good punk song from start to stop. It's a little roller coaster. I'm still proud of that song. So Aaron was like reflecting on A to B Life 10 years later. And like, this is the one that came to mind. It's like, yeah, that was pretty good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was pretty good. Yeah, that's... Yeah. Classic Aaron, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. So how, so let's talk about how the song starts. So you mentioned uh, sort of a synthesizer sound. Um, there, so for, for what I can tell, there is a synth in there, but there's also a guitar doing something um, a little bit <laughs> odd. Um, let's hmm. see as best as I can. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So there's, there's. Mike is playing the guitar, and it's just this open fifth. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll try on this show to give you all just as much music theory as is appropriate, and not too much because you know it's like we could, you know, we could do a podcast about anything and break it down and be like, well, let's talk about the, the building blocks of physical universe and how (laughs) atoms work and like at some point you just have to stop breaking things apart right yeah i believe there's a conversation for the untitled season (laughs) (laughs) yeah um but i do think it's important 
to to just uh, recognize out of the gate the opening interval that we hear is mostly a perfect fifth. It's a really simple, pure interval um, that, like, a, almost all music on the planet is is rooted in that relationship. It's not just the Western mm-hmm. canon, but like in like in an, uh, like a sitar in in classical Indian music, like the drone strings that underlie everything else are tuned to a perfect fifth. Hmm. Um, and everything else plays on top of that. Um, in like the earliest days of Western music, uh, starting to form harmony, where it wasn't just a solo melody line, but there's actually multiple notes playing at a time, the fifth was like the interval that was acceptable to move in parallel with two notes against each other. So there's something really foundational and almost like as a human universal that like we recognize. And it's in physics too. Like the fifth, fifth is a really important interval foundationally. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a little bit of the overtone series. The fifth is a low overtone and I'm going to stop at that for now. But, it, <laughs> but the way that the whole record is constructed, you're constantly hearing parallel perfect fifths uh, because it's in, in drop D. Right. Uh, and that's another thing. This is from the same interview uh, that Aaron gave in 2012 with Albany Press. He said, uh, it was a fairly crude time of songwriting in terms of drop D power chords, which musically is something we're not terribly proud of. <laughs> so so he, again, he's reflecting on it and thinking, well, like it was kind of like a lazy you know, thing to do. But there's not like, I, I mean, we're going to, we have a whole season to get into this. There's nothing lazy or like simple about what they're doing with the drop D power chords. But everything on this album, like all the guitar work is rooted in these uh, open fifth things. And I, like, I don't know, like y'all have played music in bands, right? At some mm-hmm. point in yep. your life. So did you ever play like drop D? Mm-hmm. Oh, constantly. Yeah. Yeah. I still, I still do often. It's really fun. <laughs> if I get tired of standard tuning, I just put it in drop D to play just whatever. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. So like, for like from like punk music from the beginning has been almost exclusively just played in power chords. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of it is cause it's, it's easy to do. And if you just need to be like loud and fast and aggressive, it's like, you know, you can, especially in drop D, you just mash one finger down. Like you can just move that around right. and you're fine. Yep. Um, <clears throat> but the way that even like the overtones work, you know, the that open fifth sound sounds really good when it's distorted in a way that's different than when it's not. Like there's other things happening yeah. in the frequency space. Um, and so there's just like, it's foundational to like, it, it's like giving you a little bit of the sonic landscape of the whole album just in that opening interval that gets played back and forth over and over. And over. So I, I actually, yeah. so I have a question. So when, yeah. Steve, when you were playing that fifth, it sounded like it sounded right. major to me right and maybe yeah. that's be, you know but the but there's i mean you mentioned an overtone i mean mm-hmm. the start of the track sounds minor like the yeah. the the track so, is in a minor key right um so i'm yeah, wondering what's what's happening there i guess musically i'm very fascinated yeah. by this same so the the thing about a power chord is that it's not it's neither major or minor there's no third in the middle of it and so right. it's ambiguous and so we project something onto it as a listener and just kind of anticipating what's there. And, Got it. and the band does this in some different ways on this, on this whole album. 
where it's ambiguous whether it feels major or minor until you hear a note that confirms, oh, that was actually minor the whole time. Mm, with, gotcha. with bullet to binary the opening, we get these two notes. And then that bass synthesizer sound is down here. It's an A lower than the guitar's A. But then it goes from there to this. And that's where yes, you get yes, sort of minor yes. feeling dissonance. Yeah, 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 yeah. together is is almost like a jazz chord yeah, yeah i love that chord it's a that's an amazing sound chord. well there's there's no c in it so for it to be an actual a minor you need an a a c and an e and there yeah. isn't one it's just a and e and f which like has this it's almost like really the e the ef together yeah. right yeah. is dissonant yeah yeah that's i mean it's so interesting to like i mean <laughs> It's funny that Aaron was like talking about how he's embarrassed about like the simplicity of the songs and their reliance on power chords. It's like, but bro, you're the the track begins with this like weird, like diminished whatever, like I don't know uh, if it's diminished yeah. chord, but like yeah. this weird dissonant chord. <laughs> yeah. Um, that like, yeah, I mean, there, I mean, there is something about I mean, post-hardcore music and like a lot of the metalcore solid state stuff relies on those like half step dissonant, yep. you know, yep. um sounds for sure. Um, but there's no question that what's happening in the beginning here is something that is not that standard mm -hmm. dissonant, um, high-pitched guitar kind yep. of sound that most metalcore bands and and things of like that were were doing and yeah it really i mean that the kind of back and forth of of that like really lulls you in mm -hmm. um to like this kind of hypnotic <laughs> state almost um and then even yeah. with the drums even though they're they're hitting so hard um and you just you feel right that yep. like yep. the drums like ricky like is ready to explode like in that yeah. even then when the, the first drum hit is very hard but where it is in the mix like volume wise it's yeah. slightly subdued every everything's a little quiet and open until aaron comes in and there's the yes the actual yeah. hit if you will and it's oh explosive is the right word for yeah. it because it's just this release there's a there's a ratcheting tension going on with that mm -hmm. chord progression and those drums that's just yeah fascinating and uh i don't know it's, it's also it's rhythmically ambiguous like yes I, i've listened to this song so many times and until the drums come in i can't i can't feel a downbeat i have no idea it? where the measure starts yeah yeah so like i just like and you know i've tried to sync it up like on the computer screen and like figure out where the downbeat is like and still it's and i i can force myself now into figuring out where that is but i don't have a clue how Ricky is that because, hears that. Is that because it fades in in the beginning? And so you don't, you can't hear like where that starts. It just kind of like, yeah, you kind I of like so. melt That's into part it. Of it. But there's, yeah. a re there's a repetition of the phrase though. So you should be able to find yeah, the rhythm. True, true. And I, right. I almost attribute it to, so what Aaron calls lazy, I call like the naive beauty of I, I don't think mm. they're none of them are classically trained especially not at this point in their career so but they've tapped into something that's actually more complex than if they were following the conventions of a classically trained person who goes into punk music for example yeah sure. yeah. yeah well and then once the drums do come in that ambiguity 
doesn't go away right away because even though now, okay, the drums are in, we, we can feel a, a steady pulse. That yeah. drum rhythm has this constant one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, mm-hmm. two, one, two. Like it, it throws you off at the end because it starts to feel like it's almost in like six, eight or something. And then you right. get those like two punches back into, okay, that's where the phrase ends. Yeah. Um, I, I'd love yeah. to see the official um, the sheet music. The official sheet music, exactly. Yeah. Because it you could almost break that into like, one measure of six eight and then the one two one two is so yeah. such a fascinating breakup but it's probably all one phrase if i had to guess because it's it's pretty fast too yeah yeah i i i put it as a single phrase length um in like at the time that one two one two ends and like okay now we start a new musical phrase yeah um, but there's some like there's some other like latin jazz and stuff like that 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 plays on those kinds of ambiguities where it makes you feel like you're in one pulse and then like shakes you back into it. And, yeah. and that's something I think to, to recognize about, and I don't even, I doubt, you know, Ricky is probably not listening to Latin jazz when they're recording A to B life, but I have no <laughs> clue. Maybe he is like, but there's, um, <laughs> but there's something about like his, his playing as a drummer to me that is like, it's so, it's so good. Like it's cause it is like, it's the hardest hitting stuff you can imagine but it's so subtle. Um, like he, like to me, like the intensity is like a rock drummer. Like the subtlety is like a, um, is like a jazz drummer, but like the arranging of the songs, like what he does in the drums is like an orchestral player. It's like every exactly. song like, mm. has a progression. It doesn't just have like a beat that he plays. Like there are movements and sections that he's going through. Right. And I think that that, I mean, it, it contributes so well to the ratcheting of that tension. I mean, the ambiguity, I think you guys are talking about when you finally get the hit and then you're into the, you know, regular four, four time, right. Of Mm -hmm. the, of the, the song, it's like, yes, (laughs) you know, Um, it's really satisfying. Yeah. It's a, it's almost like a rhythmic dissonance. Like you need it to resolve somewhere that it finally does. Yeah. And so, you know, we can, I think, jump to sort of talking about how the song opens. I mean, as much as we talked about the just the opening music, uh, there's so much to say about the opening lyrics of um, of the song. So I think, you know, I think most people know by now, um, although I, you know, don't want to assume that everyone knows this, but the (laughs) opening lines are a reference to the. Uh, uh, 13th century Persian poet Rumi. And uh, I'll just say a little bit uh, about the background here and, and who Rumi was and, and um, you know, without getting into his whole biography, but he was an Islamic um, mystic. Um, he was a fiqh, which is uh, an Islamic jurist. So essentially uh, someone who interprets Sharia law and um, how to apply it. Uh, he was a theologian, a philosopher. Um, he wrote very extensively on a whole range of uh, of issues. Um, he was a Sunni Muslim, which essentially just means that um, he 
you know, the, the Sunnis believe that the the line of succession following Muhammad is by appointment and not by blood relation. That's the main difference. Um, there's a whole bunch of other theological differences, but <laughs> at the beginning, that was the thing that sort of split those two um, branches, uh, the Shia and Sunni Muslims. Um, he's also a, 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 a Sufi. Um, and sometimes, uh, you know, folks get confused and think Sufism is a third branch of Islam, but it's not. It's uh, mystical Islam that can be practiced in and is practiced in both both Shia and Sunni um, Islam, hmm. um, and it's not too uh, it's not too different. I I would say, um, sort of in its metaphysical commitments um, than Christian mysticism or Jewish mysticism. In fact, all three of those traditions have enormous influence on one another through the Middle Ages, through it, you know. Um, a wide ranging exchange of philosophical ideas. Um, but the basic uh, idea in, um, in Sufism is, uh, is worship of the divine, worship of Allah by sort of um, losing yourself in, uh, in divine experience. Um, and so there's a lot of different ways that this is uh, accomplished. Probably the, the most well-known form of Sufi meditation and prayer practice is uh, the practice of the whirling dervishes, hmm. um, who uh, are Sufi mystics, right, and primarily located in Turkey, right, who wear these long flowing gowns and they there's music playing and they spin, basically. And that spinning is something they have to practice so that they don't run into each other or fall over from getting dizzy, but they use the sensation of spinning um, to allow their mind to sort of get lost in meditation on uh, on Allah. So the, the opening lines then, let us die, let us die, uh, come from uh, this poem, uh, A Mouse and a Frog. <laughs> which is uh, a, basically just a story, sort of like a fable, I guess, uh, about, but but the, I mean, we're not gonna, we don't need to read the whole thing. I mean, I think all we need to know is that it's a story about friendship um, and the nature of deep relationship, right? And at the end of this, uh, the poem, uh, Rumi writes, do camel bells say, let's meet back here Thursday night? Ridiculous. They jingle together continuously, talking while the camel walks. Do you pay regular visits to yourself? Don't argue or answer rationally. Let us die and dying reply. Um, and so the idea there is that like, when you are in deep relationship with someone, you don't schedule time, right? You're, you're not making time to be with them. You're just with them constantly. Um, and so it's not only a metaphor about friendship and relationship. And I think that that does have something to do with the song, right? We will um, get there shortly. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, but, but it also has something to do with how you conceive of your relationship to God, right? That you don't, you shouldn't be scheduling time to be with God, that God should be something that is ever present with you, right? That you are just constantly uh, in relationship with God. And so this question at the end, do you pay regular visits to yourself, right? Um, I mean, as I just said a, a minute ago, mysticism and, and Sufism in particular is about losing yourself in the divine, where the, the self 
sort of dissolves into the divine um, and you can experience the the irrationality of the divine. And by irrational, I don't mean like crazy, like you're behaving irrationally. I mean, like... Um, beyond reason. Right, exactly. That That God is beyond our comprehension. And so the only way to fully experience the divine is to lose lose yourself right and um and so and yeah so i think that that's what the those last few lines are getting to right do you pay regular visits to yourself don't argue or answer rationally right don't think rationally about this um in fact you you need to die right die to self die to your regular experience your normal experience of the world and dying, upon dying, then you can answer the question, do you pay regular visits to yourself? So yeah, so that's where we start. <laughs> it's so, with that. Yeah, Steve. So this is it's such an interesting dovetail. If we just take the ending of Rumi's poem as the opening line of Me Without You's song, it, and just assume for the moment we're still in the headspace of the, the mouse and the frog on the line, let us die, let us die. Then like then there's this sort of like warm like friendship about it, and then you like drop down into the world of A to B life. Yeah, and like yeah, yeah. And and then so Rumi's poem doesn't end with a. It just says in dying reply, there is no reply given. Uh, but right. but there is one bullet to binary exactly, and it throws all sorts of questions into this. I don't know, Nick, if you have anything right, to say right, about right that. Right before, right before we get into the reply, I yeah. wanted to sit on just one very subtle, probably not that profound thing, but the addition yeah. of we mm. to that mm. line. I found yeah. very, very interesting, especially in the context of the Kierkegaard references mm. throughout yeah. this album, if it, it meta references, if you will. Right. Because in a sense, that collect that insertion of the collective, the we, whether that's the band, whether that's the listeners, the people, humanity itself, two people in a relationship, whatever we want to look at that as, it's almost like he's missing the point of the Rumi poem. But I don't <laughs> think he is. I, I think he's intentionally inserting a little bit of this aesthetic or hedonistic, like personal self into it, like yeah. grapple, grappling with the dying of the self, the ego death, if you will, or the literal dying, potentially, it, depending on how melodramatic you want to read this, the insertion of the, of the self, even the collective self, is a really interesting little interplay. It's worth remembering, just to, to put a clear point on it, that as we've said before, this is a breakup album. So like yep. in the context mm -hmm. of like where this record is going, with none of that background in it, just as a listener, you experience this as as some us, you know, and some we saying these lines, let us die. And if and if, you know, if we're running with this hunch that maybe we're entering midway through the story or even like towards the end of the story, this is like act three is where track one begins. Uh, then it's almost like just declaring the end of the relationship out of the gate. And that's yep. a simple read, but I, I think it works. Yeah, yeah no. and And I think that uh, there's there's this interesting tension that I think actually is throughout me without you's catalog, and it's I think it's so great that it's the opening lines of uh, of their very the very first track on their first full length introduce us to this tension, but sort of along the lines what Nick was saying this sort of hedonistic there, there's 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 a I think significant tension between sort of 
knowing what you're supposed to do yes. right as a good spiritual person not even just a religious person but someone who is supposed to be attuned to the universe i mean rumi has said let us die and or you know die and then in dying reply right uh -huh. and so it's like you know you're supposed to do that right aaron is attuned to that and yet his reply is don't tell us about your suffering <laughs> yes <laughs> look in our eyes right let us be i mean it's you know it's like this okay but i don't want to i'm too pissed off right now yeah right? i'm too hurt i can't i can't let i can't do this right i can't just let it go i mean it's so interesting i you know because this we know that they were young guys when they uh wrote and recorded this album you know when i teach when i teach world religion uh and and we get to taoism right this is a big thing in taoism as well right you need to you have to be like flowing water right? So whatever mm -hmm. happens is meant to happen and there's no point in railing against it just let yourself flow with the universe and my students cannot get on board with that they get mad about it they're like no like because there's something so uh, i mean maybe it's maybe it's a western thing i don't know but there it's i, I don't want to say it's like endemic to all humanity necessarily but there is something that is kind of human about being 18 years old and like saying you know what i just need some time to be pissed at the world right now right. um and and i think that there you know just to touch on this a little bit before we celebrate too much about young white men being pissed at the world right? <laughs> um, you know there there is some elements certainly of a kind of toxicness uh with regard to masculinity although i think it's i think it's challenging to pin toxic masculinity on on aaron weiss um because there's so much about especially his, when you watch the trajectory of him and we'll get into this as they come up, but lyrical changes, especially in this right. album, when you watch them perform live now, there's certain yeah. lines he doesn't say, there's certain mm -hmm. lines that he changes. Yeah. Um, and that that's true throughout the discography because these are living documents in a sense. He's he's constantly right. refreshing what's going on in his mind. But yeah, there's also something to be said about it being a commentary on this experience. This is not. 100% yeah. autobiographical. I, I, right. We should make that no. very clear. Yeah. yeah, Stupid, but I before we get away from the first line, if we ever get away from the first line of this song, <laughs> I I just think you know we're we're calling this show us without them. I I find it ironic and slightly threatening that the first line that they sing is "Let us die." Yep. If we're supposed to be the us in, in this project, uh, maybe oh, that's heck. a bad omen. Well, maybe what we're doing. <laughs> yeah. Maybe it's a maybe it's an admonition, right? Me, it's me without you telling us the podcasters yeah. just let us yeah. die. <laughs> let, us, let us die already. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Don't don't start back at the beginning all over again. <laughs> yeah. What yeah. are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> well, and let's hold on to that as a. It sounds funny, and it is funny, yeah. but there's some truth to it. 
in in reflecting on it, and if we take a postmodern perspective that the author's intent doesn't really matter here, that that's a really interesting way to read that line upon reflecting upon a band that was fraught with turmoil from the start. Like, what mm-hmm. is the path they're going to take? Are they going to try to blow up and become a, ro- a huge rock band? Do they only want to play Christian shows in basements of churches? Do, you know, that dichotomy from the start, I, I think that's probably something at least a couple of the guys in the band have said in earnest, like, can't we just die? Can't this just end? Like, it's, it's there's this tor- turmoil yeah. throughout it. So back to the reply, (laughs) which, and this is why I wanted to sit on the we for a second, because, and how it's annotated in the, or how it's, how it's notated in the liner notes of the album and online is that's being quoted as don't talk to us about your suffering, look in our eyes. And then he repeats, look in our eyes. That's Mm -hmm. quoted. So that's, that is the us, that is the collective we saying this statement and then let us be is out of that quote so that's almost Mm -hmm. it it does a nice coupling with the let us die pairing just from a poetic standpoint that's really nice but let us be going back to what joel was saying about the kind of 18 19 year old like let me be let me sit and being pissed (laughs) and I, i think that's really a fascinating you can't just get to that mysticism goal. You can't reach enlightenment without going through. Yeah, and that I think that that's that's um, man that brings to mind something that I think is so important about this band, right? Which is that um, this particular music scene in general, in relation to Christianity, I think really pushes against this more conservative Christian idea that um, that you can't go through doubt, right? That you can't, you shouldn't experience any struggle with your faith that, um, that if you do somehow that's a sign that maybe you were never saved to begin with. Right. And, um, I just think the whole catalog (laughs) of this band just is a big no to that, right? No, no, no. Developing a a kind of true authentic to me expression of faith means that there are going to be times where I, I need to be mad. And I mean, I, this has been pointed out so many, anyone who's, um, you know, uh, attended a more progressive church or um, went to seminary or something like that, I'm sure has heard this, but the psalmist, right, sort of famously rails against God, right, and demands that God um, do something, answer him, right, Um uh, explain why, you know, certain bad things have befallen him or something like that. So there is some resonance here, I think, even with the Psalms um, and this yeah. uh, this desire to say, you know what, I can't just pretend everything is fine. And then that, I mean, that's reinforced then. I mean, I'm jumping ahead here a bit, but in the second verse, the lines in, in French, right, which are a reference to the verse, I lift my eyes up to the mountains, where does my hope come from? Um, you know, I lift my, the, the lines in French are, I lift my eyes up, I've changed my name a hundred times, I lift my eyes up, I have no hope. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, again, I think it's it's reinforcing, repeating sort of that same theme of, I, I, I'm not okay right now. Yep. And me just 
pretending that, oh, you know, God's going to just make everything better in this moment. No, I, I don't have that hope right now. And I think that there's something, I think uh, so many of us recognize there is something healthy in that point of view, right? That it's okay to not be okay. I mean, you hear that yeah. all over the place now these days. In, in fact, yeah, let, let's lean into that for just a half a moment here. Because one of the other things that Aaron does so perfectly, even if you're not a person of faith, which I'm adapting to become more spiritual as I become an adult, but look at me, I'm almost 30 saying I'm becoming an adult. Um, <laughs> but uh, this honesty about his pain that sure many other white men in the punk scene whether it was christian or not have this i'm mad and you need to hear about it mentality but aaron has this authenticity around the struggle of mental health and it's not quite as apparent in this album well you could make an argument it is i think it's slightly less on the nose on this album and it's more just i'm sad i'm angry i'm pissed Right. Uh, why did she leave me? Why did I leave her? Because her faith was not adequate enough, you know, things of that nature. But really just leaning into that, it's okay to not be okay mentality. Like you have to feel the feelings you have to process yeah. them. And so leaning into that even further, there's an interesting going back to Kierkegaard and correct me if I'm misusing the aesthetic, the ethical and, and the religious, but how I was interpreting this using that is you have to kind of sit in the aesthetic for a minute because it's, it's, it's kind of the default. Mm -hmm. That's, yeah. that's what society teaches us to do. And almost that conservative perspective that you were talking about, and I'm not meaning that in a political sense per se, right. Right. But, uh, the just shut up and have the faith that we're telling you to have and do not express your doubt, shove that down. That's an aesthetic interpretation of the religion and the dogma that you're being mm -hmm. taught in a, in, a, in a real sense. But as you start to grapple with it from an ethical standpoint, as Aaron's clearly doing here, quoting Rumi and then going immediately into, but I'm still stuck in my feelings. That is, that's the spinning in the whirling dervish perspective. Mm -hmm. Like that's kind of what's happening and on, yeah. on a meta level. You have to spin out of that in in a sense. Mm. I love that. I mean, I think I think the image of the whirling dervish is going to serve us for a while. I don't need to get into it more now, but I, I think that's that's going to be <laughs> that's going to be an image that's going to come back again and again. Um, yeah. yeah. I, I just want to say a quick word on you know two things about about that second verse in in French. Um, one the. The passage, Joel, that you were quoting is, is the beginning of Psalm 121. Um, mm. So the psalmist is, is the one saying this. It's also part of the, the section of the book of Psalms called the Song of Ascents, which these songs about going up to Jerusalem. So when, when the psalmist says, I lift my eyes to the hills and where does my help come? He's looking towards Jerusalem mm. and thinking about me without you in context of this like sort of complex interfaith expression and identity from from Christianity and Judaism Islam all at the same time all of them have you know Jerusalem as this focal point in the center yeah and so for him to be looking to the hills looking up towards Jerusalem and having no hope that there's no answer there is a powerful statement right out of the yeah. gate yeah for trying to resolve his problems <laughs> yeah 
Oh, it is. And I, I don't want to get too far ahead because we have skipped a couple lines from the second actual verse. Um, but just just to comment on that point, Steve, if all you're doing is looking to the physical space, you know, and obviously Jerusalem is clearly an important space in all three of those religions and probably some others that I'm not even aware of from that have either died away or, or what have you. But God isn't there. That's just the place that we've talked about God and that the prophets have, have manifested and, and things of that nature. But God is everywhere. Back to the Rumi point, your relationship mm. with God, your relationship with the divine, even if you don't believe in a deity, that needs to be happening everywhere, wherever you look. So the not finding hope in the particular place, mm. there's like that's okay. In, in my opinion, because you'll find it again, and then you'll you'll come back around. All circles presuppose, after all, um, <laughs> <laughs> that you'll come back around to finding the the imagery of it, if if you will. Like it's almost literary. Like I mean, it li- literally, the Bible is a literary piece. That's a metaphor for how you need to interact with God. More like- than. Yeah, I, I really like that. I and and there's, I mean, this is get, this point is going to get, uh, I think, beyond the scope of this particular song. Sure, sure. But it for sure is something that, that's going to come back later. I mean, so to kind of put what Nick is saying in in, I guess, more theological, Please. technical terms, <laughs> um, you know, the there's this kind of debate in Protestant theology between the nature or, or about the nature of revelation, not the book of revelation, but the act of God revealing to you the truth, right? And there are many Protestants, and, and this sort of is the legacy of evangelicalism, right, who believe that um, God only communicates through the special revelation of the word, meaning Jesus, right? That mm. Jesus as the word is the special revelation of God. Um, and this is sort of anti-Catholic in a way, um, because for Catholics, there's a, a sense of general revelation, right? That right. Um, that the, the world is full of signposts that direct us toward God. Yeah. And so I think that, you know, I, I kind of was what you were saying about like, no, it's not a specific place. Like God is everywhere. God is all around you. It it reminded me of this distinction between special and general revelation. And I definitely think me without you, I mean, especially when you think about, um, you know, Allah, 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 right. And everywhere we look and everywhere we look, correct. Yeah. God is everywhere. Um, So they're definitely on the side of, of general revelation and not, not special revelation. And I think that that, um, the resistance to special revelation, I think, does do work throughout the catalog. I think that's something mm-hmm. that's going to come back. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and you know, and while we're we're mentioning the whole catalog here, one is I think I said this in one of the intro episodes. Like, I think it's 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 it makes sense to read the first four albums as one kind of a cycle on a certain trajectory and the last three are kind of doing something different. And we can talk about that when we get there, but uh, we, we do see the beginning of a trajectory towards the ending of it's all crazy. It's all false yep. right here. And in that way too. Um, I, yeah. I don't want, I will, I'll leave it at that. The other thing I want to say about the big picture, both for this song 
the subject of this episode as well as in general is the title. We haven't talked about the title at all. Mm. Oh, that's true. This song, is called, this, this song is called Bullet to Binary. So if we're talking about these binary distinctions about, you know, what, however you want to frame that, right? I mean, in, in the sort of cultural sphere that Me Without You dropped into of like, like early 2000s, like Christian post-punk being part of that tooth and nail uh, family, like there's a lot of are you in or are you out? Yep. However you yeah. want to frame that, whether you're like in the scene or out of the scene or up to the point of like, are you saved or are you damned? Like those kinds of questions are really hard line binary. And what, like what a punk rock move to come out uh, like in the title of your first track. Hell yeah. 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 <laughs> Just ripping through that binary. <laughs> That's amazing. I think, yeah. I think we can take it for this song itself. But I also think because A to B life, not only in the title of the album, but also in a lot of the lyrical work is obsessed with binaries. And I'm yeah. going to try to point these out everywhere I find them. Yeah. <laughs> um, right. Uh, it's not like the bullet has actually like destroyed this thing yet, but it's almost like the, the trigger has been pulled. And like you see this like slow motion where like, like the end has been set from the beginning. Like the binary is going to be destroyed exactly when that happens. Who's to say, uh, it's not gone yet by the end of the first song, though. Right. Right. No. Right. And is it gone at the end of the cycle, as we've talked about before, of the first four tracks? You could make an argument for it, but there's also mm-hmm. something beautiful about going all the way to the, the cure for pain, mm-hmm. like living in the pain. Anyway, we'll talk more about yeah. that when we get there. Yeah. quick just so that we aren't leaving any lyrics on the table let us be let us be our closeness is such that whenever she rests her head in the softness and underneath she'll feel me and you'll feel me so that's like the bells on the camel to go back to the the mouse and the frog or a mouse and a frog for for a second but then there's this twist she'll feel me and you'll feel me so who do you is you god Ooh. <laughs> so let me tell you joel can give a, a good answer and i'll give a bad one first so this line <laughs> this line to me whatever may be actually supposed to be happening in the lyrics i can't shake the experience of listening to the song both having heard it live and on the record and i'm i live in oklahoma so i only ever hear the song as y'all feel me not yep. you will feel me <laughs> yeah and <laughs> And so it just sounds like a shout out to the audience. Yo, it's like, it's like we're getting, yeah, that's exactly what it is. That's, good. that's so okay. So I, I mean, my experience of it is somewhat similar, although I don't hear it as y'all. I do hear it as y'all, but I ex- have always experienced that line as Aaron sort of turning, like to stare directly down camera in a sense breaking the fourth saying wall. to the yeah saying to the listener you'll feel me yep. she'll feel me and you listening yep. you anonymous person you will feel me um i don't know what that does necessarily to 
uh, I mean, maybe it doesn't have to do anything like to the interpretation of the song. I, I yeah. but it, it always has felt like a moment where he's speaking directly to the listener. I, I too have felt that, but given where it goes in the French verse, that was mm-hmm. the only reason I was like, okay, so oh, this yeah. is a cue up for talking to God or Jesus. Sure. Yeah. Okay. In, in the French perspective, that being said, there is something um, otherworldly about seeing me without you live and listening to their records in which you feel these moments of just being washed into something beyond the self. So I really like the interpretation of it as just a, a, a reference to us, the listeners, yeah. uh, because it is, it, that's kind of what's happening. Like you're along for the ride too now y'all. And it's, it's going to hurt and it's going to feel weird and we're going through it together. I, and I, I don't think it needs to be just one or the other. I, I feel like, you know, if, if we're running with the idea that the, even the band's name, me without you mm-hmm. has a, has a sort of an interchangeable, like it's, you know, I just want to take a moment for this. Me without you is such a such an interesting band name. Even if they originally thought it just sounded sort of over emotional and silly, they clearly decided out of the gate capitalize the Y. So, mm-hmm. so the the clear implication is that God is the subject of the U, and and so anywhere that you see a U in their lyrics, and you're wondering whether this is addressing God directly or whether it's it's another person. You actually have to do the kind of backwards work that you would have to do with a lot of other like evangelical based music at the time where like it sounds like it's a love song to your boyfriend. But then, like, <laughs> oh, wait, the hidden meaning is that this is actually about God. But it's like, the, but this is doing the opposite thing. It's like you just your baseline assumption as soon as you see the band's names that these are all songs addressed to God. And then like, oh, wait, sometimes the hidden meaning is that he's just like singing about somebody he knows. Like, yep. Um, I, I find that fascinating. <laughs> I do, too, because this being a postmodern literary analysis, like yeah. it's both and neither <laughs> because it is whatever we want it to be. Yeah. I, I also think, you know, if, if you tee up and you'll feel me as, as a, as a momentary prayer that leads into this, uh, this bit in French, which yep. one, it's just interesting that he goes into French at all, you know? Uh, <laughs> yeah. And he <laughs> supposedly, Maybe according to to some kind soul on on genius like genius.com this is a reference yeah. to uh, Leonard, Leonard Cohen's, Cohen song yeah the part which is not in. it's not the same words but it's just a verse that's in French um, yep so and I don't want to like go too far down that rabbit hole um, and and like try to parse out you know, we're we're spending so much time on each line we don't need to go like figure out what Leonard Cohen songs about no, too but, no no. Um, I'll just assume for the moment, for time's sake, that he just thought it was cool and he ran with it. And that's that's yeah, what we've I got. mean, I, I that, just wanna, you know, just just step back from all this uh highfalutin philosophy talk for a minute. Ah. Uh my mind was blown when I I like the first time I heard this verse, I was like, wait, is that a different language? What is he saying? Yep. Yep. Is, like I couldn't believe that he was I mean, it felt you know, be I when I was in 1920 like you know i was i had been in film school i thought of myself in there as very sophisticated um (laughs) and kind of pretentious and so to hear someone do a verse in french like in a post-hardcore song i was like whoa this is legit (laughs) this is like yeah you know to be able to pull that off and not have it feel 
um, sort of contrived or like you're trying too hard. I mean, maybe people, some people felt that way, but for, you know, 20 year old me, I was like, that, that's cool. I, yeah. I like that. I totally agree. Also, I, this may be too much, but in the second line of that, um, the, I've changed my name a hundred times. I don't know if this is, this is reading too far from the tiny bit that I understand. Um, Sufi practice that like chanting the names of God is a big part of worship. That like, there's something about all these different names identifying God uh, that, that, and that, and that's doing something different here. It's doing some different work because he's talking about changing his own name. But I just, I think we're kind of in that neighborhood and it's interesting to think about there. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like we've also just been dwelling so much on the first, you know, half of half. the song because the second half of the song is um, kind of rough. <laughs> I think. Just because, I mean, as you know, we talked about, we touched on like this idea of, of toxic masculinity and stuff. And I do think that, um, you know, there, yeah, people people do need space to feel their feelings. Um, I mean, even white dudes need that, <laughs> need that space. Right. Um, I think it's, you know, how it's expressed and sort of the the demands on those around the person expressing it, that's where the problem really comes it, in when, yes. when you demand that everyone turn and listen to you, um, that, that you're feeling somehow, you know, um, supersede all others. I think that's when, when we have the problem, but, um, but for sure, you know, I mean, when you're, uh, 18, 19, 20, you're gonna experience heartache and you're gonna want to write some emo songs about it i think i mean right. i don't know that was definitely my experience for sure yeah yeah well and online it both on genius and in some other forums this is one of those sections where there's kind of a running theme of a potential stalker elements like is the narrator a stalker yeah is he literally is it is it metaphorically who knows and i mean you'll feel my breath there filling up your lungs Whew. Okay. Yeah. I'm the air that you breathe now. All right. That's fine. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I always, I always interpreted the, the kind of, this kind of coda of, of the song yeah. as not, um, it's more like in your memory, mm-hmm. like I'm going to be so ingrained in your memory that, yeah. that I will not be a literal things. stalking. Right. I, exactly. I think yeah. that I was so important to you. Right. Yeah. which which i guess isn't like in some ways is not that much better like i mean right. it's better yeah. than yeah. literally stalking <laughs> but this idea that that like you like i was so great and important that like you're never going to be able to forget me baby like yeah, right. i i'm just going to be in your mind forever um well, yeah and just try to try to internalize this for a moment think of it from from the other perspective think that you are the person being addressed here 
yep. uh, that like every time you laugh, like you suddenly can't enjoy laughing because like somehow you're feeling somebody else's breath there or you're like having a genuine emotional experience and crying and like, oh no, like I'm just, I'm just That's feeling them. that like yeah. it's still there. And like saying the words, I love you to somebody and you can't even feel that sincerely because you've got the poison of a memory of somebody else there. Like that's, that's harsh. Like That's it really is. harsh. Well, and it's, it's harsh. Yeah. It's, it's the sort of thing of anyone making a hurtful statement, whether that's like a bigoted or a biased statement or whatever, they're often talking about themselves and externalizing it and projecting it onto someone mm-hmm. else. So like I read that as Aaron the character Aaron right. saying, that's me. I'm actually feeling all of those things because I can't, I can't quit you. I can't. Oh yeah. That's, that's actually what's going on here. Right. right. Which is hilarious because one of the kind of meta commentaries is, was the cause of this breakup that Aaron, it, some people interpret this as his actual ex-girlfriend, Amanda, I believe was her name. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, um, he they broke up because he was on the spiritual journey that she wasn't keeping up with, basically. So he's supposed to be connecting with God on this on this higher level, the divine on this higher level, and she's not there. But he's the one fixating on I can't let you go on right when I cry. If we if we read it that way, that this is yep. actually him speaking yep. almost to himself. Yeah, that's that's a super interesting one. But there there's some lines in here though to go back to the philosophy for a moment. Like I'm like poison on your tongue, but when you're tired, if you're quiet, hear me singing you to sleep. There's almost this like the tension of the good and the good and the evil and how those are constant yeah. in humanity. Yeah, I mean especially that last that last phrase when you're tired if you're quiet hear me singing i mean there's there's like a sweetness there yep that but it's tainted by the fact that this is your it's your it's me your ex-lover who yes. you want to forget but i'm the one who's going to comfort you um i just i also just want to point out um you know i think it's definitely worth pointing out how common this this kind of lyricism was in this era so just a couple examples that i mean there's a million examples but a couple that come to my mind immediately um is the saves the day song rocks tonic juice magic which begins (laughs) let me take this awkward saw run it against your thighs cut some flesh away i'll carry this piece of you with me um i mean saves the day's lyrics are sort of uh known for i mean at least in the first few albums known for being kind of violent like yeah. that, like he's, um, I feel like Chris Conley sort of, he didn't invent this, but he really popularized in a lot of ways, like talking about your your lungs and your spleen and like all like internal organs <laughs> filling yeah. up with blood and all this like stuff that we really associate with emo, especially mall emo kind of stuff now. Yeah. But but also taking back Sunday, um, you know, oh, uh, taking back Sunday and say anything both come to mind as like, oh, right. Yep. Yes. And, and two bands that are also very closely related in a lot of ways to saves the day. But, um, but yeah, I mean, this was like a really common thing. Um, super common, uh, among tooth and nail bands it, it's, <laughs> and it's maybe, I mean, this is, this maybe will come up uh later as well throughout the seasons um Mm -hmm. but but it's interesting to think about like you know there's there's always this confusion in 
Christian music between, is this talking about God or is this talking about a girlfriend here? Like, is this Jesus or, but to put it in the context then of like the violent sort of hatred of right. the opposite sex. Um, yeah. I wonder if there, are, uh, I wonder if, I'm not saying that this, that you could read this like end part as if it were about God necessarily, but I wonder if that will come up later on like oh is there going to be that kind of confusion here um yeah i don't know no that that's a that's a really interesting point because the very last line hear hear me singing you to sleep that puts such a fine point on the violence violent thoughts towards the ex-lover but it's also the line that feels like god is ever present yeah. God is there to sing you just, I mean, if God is ever present and you fall asleep to the sound of the wind blowing in crickets, that's God speaking to you and singing to you. Right. Oh, in in a sense. So, I mean, hell, yeah. like we, we've got the binary constantly. Of, yeah. Is it God yeah. or is it her or another person? Yeah. I mean, that, yeah. that does fit, that does fit kind of well with like, you know, um, I know this whole idea of like, I know how I'm supposed to orient myself toward God. And yet I'm so upset that even God is like poison on my tongue or yep. God is filling up my, is, is, you know, this impediment to my happiness in some way that, that that's interesting. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, some, some listeners might think that's carrying it too far. Oh, sure. sure. I think that, um, you know, I think that that it's interesting to sort of reflect on it that sure. way. Yeah. Well, and he, and then it puts a like two very different reads on that that whole yeah. last verse because if you read it as like Aaron's character singing to this woman, that has one implication. If you read it as like a God character singing to the Aaron character, yep, that that's the response to him looking up to the hills and having yeah. no hope. Like that's wow. it's a whole other song. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Which I actually really like. I mean, we yeah. could oh, that's a really interesting yeah. one. Hmm. I so, mean, I think it I think it works. I think you could make the argument for sure. I think the argument yeah. is there, you know. Um yeah. I don't I don't think this is a third argument. I just think it's a way to combine the two. Hmm. Which is what if Aaron is singing to the ex-lover? about her journey towards the divine. So as basically like you are damned forever because of how you have hurt me. So as you attempt to, yeah, this is taking it too far potentially, but as you attempt to embrace God or embrace the divine or whatever it may be, you can't. Uh, reading into that, like when yeah. you say you love him line, for example. Yeah. Yeah, I, the the that that's the line. And when you say you love him, taste me, I'm like poison on your tongue. That is like the sort of wrench in the system for any sort of multiple reads on this. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. you have to you have to be a little more imaginative with what you think that line means. Right. Hundred yeah. um, <laughs> percent. Like, if, for example, if you th imagine this is like these are words like from God to Aaron, which is a fascinating but a little bit fanciful read on this. Um, at best, there it's like when you say you love him. You know, I'm going back to to we'll go back to Martin Buber for a minute. We mentioned it at the like very, very beginning of the show. Buber asserts in I Am Now that even as soon as you create a him or a her out of a person, you've already rendered them as an it. Yeah. If you step anywhere yeah. outside of you, 
you've mm-hmm. objectified the person. So for you, yep. say, when you say you love him, even if it means when you say you love God, as soon as that's become an it or a him, mm. taste me, I'm like poison on your tongue. Like the real divine presence is like, yeah, is not allowing him to stay content in that. I I love that. I love where you're going with that. And it, it, it also begs the question of, of the classic, like, does God have a gender? Is God a person question? Right. Mm-hmm. So like, when you say you love him, i.e. you objectifying the divine as a yeah. person with a gender, you're, you're kind of yep. missing the point there because yep. God is beyond our comprehension, including how we conceive gender. So that's, ooh, I, I love that. Yeah. So we've been a lot on the lyrics other than my little excitement about perfect fifths at the beginning. I just want yeah. to say a word for what's been going on in the music this whole time as we sure. kind of get to the end of the song. So, so one thing that I think is super important to, to recognize is this song is, is through composed. Now, that quote I mentioned earlier where Aaron said, um, it's a really good punk song from start to stop. It's a little roller coaster. So that roller coaster feeling that you get is because there are no like repeated sections. Yep. It's just some music and then some different music and then some different music. It just yeah. rolls on straight through without ever going back to anything. So there's this forward momentum, which is great for an opening track for a record that it, like, it doesn't let mm-hmm. you get complacent and feel, oh, okay, we're back to the chorus again. Like, no, it just drives the energy forward. These songs are weird. They're not clear like verses and choruses like a lot yeah. of songs are. Yeah. I mean, I just said the French first was verse two. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah. I don't, I mean, <laughs> I mean, What's it kind of is because I mean, you know, we talked about the through structure of the song, but I think that mm-hmm. in some ways that that part does it does feel a little bit like the a repeat of the first verse, doesn't it? I mean, the 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 cadence of the vocals is is totally different, but musically, the, yeah, the underlying music's different too. The only oh, thing is. that repeats, okay. yeah, the um, the intro to the song is the same music as the first verse, but just. At, full volume like when when the verse comes in like as soon as he starts singing let us die it's the same music that was playing in the intro it's just everybody's uh-huh. in the volume Interesting. but as soon as you get it and you don't think about it but if you go back and listen to the subtle layers of it that little like repeated open fifth riff that that mike is playing is still playing during the whole lyrical part of the first verse it's just right very yeah 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 um, in the mix with a bunch of other music yeah going. that's yeah cool. but the the french verse is uh you know, it has this chromatic thing. That's a totally oh, different okay. riff. Yeah, totally. Than... Yeah. No, you're right. But the cadence of it feels similar. Yeah. There's a, there's a similarity to it. Like they're related to each other, I guess. Yeah. There's a clear progression in the song. So, because Joel, I, I felt like it was the same in, in the sense this is the closest thing to two verses this song gets with a really long outro, um, basically, yeah, coda. Yeah. 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 That when it comes in in French, that that's a basically it's a C power chord. It's the first time you get that that pitch of a C natural that you really like are intuiting and imagining in the intro, but you don't actually get anyone playing a C until you get to the, the thing in French. And I I don't know that we need to read too much into that, but there's the way that people understand key when they're listening to music is usually just filling in the gaps and just assuming a tonal center until you hear information that. That tells you otherwise, and that actually confirms the suspicion from the beginning that we're in A minor. Um, but oh, when the C in. comes in, yeah, when okay. the C comes in, um, and then and you get that C note again, and then like that's a C right there. Mm-hmm. 
There's there's a couple of interesting instrumental sections that I'm that are just these transitions between the parts with lyrics, but I want to fixate for a moment on the second one that leads in to that last set of words that begins when you laugh. So the instrumental between the French verse and then this last verse we've been talking about um, ends like, so the, the chords for the whole last part of the song are just this chunky drop D stuff. It's a lot of an E major or not an E major at all. It's just an E power chord, right? And it lands on A. A is, is definitely like the tonal center of this whole song. We hear it at the yeah. very beginning. Which I didn't mention this earlier. I don't know if you all ever felt this. I, I, the beginning of the song sounds a little bit like threatening or ominous to me. And yeah. I was trying to think of why. And all I can think of now is, is John Carpenter's score to Halloween. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. I was gonna, I yeah, was gonna yeah. refer to it as the sound that you hear throughout all the Friday the Thirteenth movies when Jason's yeah. coming. Oh, this right. like, yeah. this um, this triad like this. Yeah. It's it's fascinating. Yeah. yeah. So and I don't I I don't know anything about horror movies, but I do know this sound and that cluster right there. If you just transpose it to where Me Without You's got it going on, it's in a different key, but it's the same set of pitches. It's, Halloween theme. Got it. Yeah. Um, wow. So that's that's interesting. But but it's in A on on the song "Bullet to Binary." So so we keep we keep landing on this big A power chord at the end of the song. Well, the the guitar solo that leads into that settles down on on a on the note B that just hangs out as a pedal tone over that last verse. So you've got wow. A is the chord that. Uh, one of the guitars is playing. I'm not sure if it's Mike or Chris at this point. And a B is the note on top of it, which is not part of the chord. And so we have A to B literally just like sitting there clashing against each other <laughs> as the song is ending, which was probably totally unintentional, but it sure is convenient. <laughs> but you just get this. And I can't, you know, I can't play both guitar parts at the same time. I'm sorry. So that's going on towards the end. I'm so hyped up about the way the song ends after the lyrics are over. So I'm going to yeah. say that if you have anything else you want to say about the words, do, but I've got something. I think no. that'll only come from any revelations from the music. So, yeah. so you go. Okay. Ahead. So here we go. So, so after that last line, uh, hear me singing you to sleep. The, the guitar starts to play something here. Uh, and then second time. time that's that a and b against each other again and we land on that sound and then it goes back again so it's fine it's a it's a little riff it's a guitar line that leads you out of the song what i what i think is so amazing about that ending coming at the end of this song in particular, coming in the context of the words that we've just heard, is, is the kind of gesture that that is, and I kind of botched playing a little bit there. But um, we have a, that, that dissonance that opens it up needs to resolve down, and then... 
So there's a name for that that little figure where you start on a dissonant note that has to resolve to the next note. And so in music, that's it's called an appoggiatura. Literally in Italian, it means to lean on something. You sort of like lean into like where you're going mm. with the sound. Wow. Um, and where where that gets used, like as a, as a gesture early on in music coming to be a sort of a dramatic force uh, in early opera in the 1600s, very quickly, that gesture, that appoggiatura of, of leaning in from like a dissonant tone to a resolution, especially in a descending figure like that, um, were associated with like crying and weeping and lamenting mm-hmm. sort of songs. It became like a stock gesture that you could you could represent um, crying and lamenting musically, even without having those words there, but mm. doing that exact thing in the music. And so we wow. have this musical lament as a coda yeah. at the end of this song. So I'm, I'm I totally hear that. hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to play a couple examples. Um, uh, these are both from um, Henry Purcell. I, it's, he's convenient to use because um, uh, the lyrics are in English, so it makes sense. There's some other op- early Baroque operas in Italian that we could pull this from too. But let's just run with Purcell for a minute. Yeah. I've got two of these clips. They're about a minute long each. I'll just play them to give the example. Okay, so here is, uh, this is a, a maybe a little bit more obscure, but this is a, a section from Purcell's opera, The Fairy Queen, which is a riff off of Shakespeare's Midsummer Night's Dream. Yeah. The figure of Juno singing, and she's actually singing about a, a marriage uh, ceremony. And this is just one line that, that uh, Henry Purcell just milks for all it's worth. He's singing, oh, let me weep. Um, so let's just listen to to the music and just keep that like final gesture from bullet to binary in mind as you hear the way the strings and the voice both play off each other. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. So, yeah, yeah. So, um, I mean, that song's a tearjerker, but there's another one that is, it's more, it's more often performed. It's a little more famous for people that care about opera, I guess, um, which is the, the, the end of um, Dido and Aeneas. This is taken from the Aeneid. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, thinking about Dante's Inferno, in the Divine Comedy, of course, Dante's guide through the whole thing is uh, is Virgil, you know, the mm-hmm. author of of the Aeneid, and so Purcell's opera Dido and Aeneas is just taking this one small section of the Aeneid and dramatizing it for the stage in a single act. It's this love story between Dido and Aeneas, the, the hero of the story, 
it doesn't go well. There's some some divine storm brewing, and he and his crew get on the boats and leave and say, "Well, I said I was going to love you forever, but never mind. I have to go found Rome, so I'm out of here." <laughs> um, and so so Dido uh, basically sets herself on fire. So that's that's the scene that this opera picks up on. I also find it interesting that um, you know in in so back to Dante. Um, Dido shows up in the second circle of hell um, after we've had this first circle of, of people basically just wishing that they could end, but they can't. So they're in the first circle is just limbo, you know, back to, to let us die, let us die all right. over again. But they, they can't like they're not really suffering, but they have no hope. That's the fate of the people in the first circle of hell. Right. Maybe back again to that last line of French. So Dido shows up in the second circle of hell as somebody who's basically banished there because her physical lust overtook her better judgment. That like she was just she was too in love with, with another human being, and that's what sealed her fate. And that's where everybody in the second circle shows up. Hmm. It's an interesting dynamic that like, you know, that Virgil is sitting there giving him the tour, and oh, there's Dido over there, you know, still suffering. So that's that's the setup, um, and here's the actual uh, clip from from the opera, which is again it's just it's just straight down the line like that that descending appoggiatura gesture that we hear at the end of Bullet to Binary. Um, but she also this last cry that gives me chills, no matter how many times I've listened to this. Uh, she sings the line, "Remember me." You know, my my gut reaction to that is, see, Aaron, it was way more complex. That or <laughs> everything's simple. There's no complexity in music. It's all like if you break it down to its base parts. Yeah. I mean, wow. I think that there's I think there's something to be said about, um, you know, music in some ways. I mean, Steve, I'm sure you could say more about this, but there's something about music that is just kind of innate in us. Like, yeah. um, and so even if they didn't have the technical understanding of what they were doing at the end of bullet to binary. There was something that just, yeah. they intuitively knew. Yeah. This is how this song should end. And it turns out right. That there's this whole history, uh, you know, and yeah. theoretical aspect to what they're doing that sort of explains why they were drawn toward that kind of ending for this track. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah there's, there's debate about, you know, if there's anything that is actually like a universal in human musical expression, I mean, every, every human culture on the planet has always had music. It's, it's, 
there isn't any group of people that gets left out of that. Um, music itself is not totally a universal language because there's definitely music that like is hard for people from different cultural backgrounds to understand what right. the other one's getting at. Yeah. But there is, there have been attempts to try to find sort of like qualified musical universals uh, that are like, okay, well almost everyone understands this kind of a thing. Yeah. And there's a handful yeah. of gestures that you can closely tie to the actual physicality and, and crying is one of those. That like there's something about like the cadence and the rhythm of what it sounds like when a person's like just heaving, weeping, mm-hmm. that that makes sense in a musical gesture like that. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, thanks everybody for uh, sticking through it and getting some culture, uh, especially there at the end. That was that was really fun. <laughs> um, that song always leaves me feeling. Again, that kind of through composition of it makes me want to keep going. But the way we just ended that feels like I've just gone through a breakup in a sense. Like <laughs> I, I feel the pain yeah. oh, in, in a really raw way, which is really cool. So um, thank you both for, for all your wonderful insights. I feel like I know the song a hundred times better than I did. And I listened to it about 18 times today. So that was, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Well, on, on, onward and upward or downward as the case may be. Thanks for listening so much and for all of this early support. It really means a lot to us and it is going to help us grow this podcast into something really uh, worth sharing with your friends and family. To help us on that journey, be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts as well as Spotify. This is so important, especially early on, to get us on the map with other podcast listeners. And also be sure to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. This way you're going to get these uh, upcoming episodes automatically downloaded to your device. You can also follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Us Without Them Pod. And don't forget to join the Facebook group, Us Without Them Podcast, where we're going to be having additional conversations with listeners uh, and getting people's feedback and ideas and comments and, and so forth. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter at us without them, and please do share us on your favorite platforms. You can also email us questions or comments at uswithoutthempod at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 405-FOXES05. That's 405-369-3705. Be sure to visit our website, uswithoutthempod.com, to see episode descriptions, blog posts, and show notes. We'll also include any relevant links to music, books, and other resources that we discuss. We'll see you all next time when we listen to... Oh, my God. Join us next week for The Ghost. <laughs> <laughs>